You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before the Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we are questing our way through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art, criticism, fandom, ever searching and looking for those hidden cauldrons of magic that inspire awe and wonder and shape our imaginations. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the experience of these animated films and have some fun too. Today we are uh, going through the 25th canonical animated film, 1985's The Black Cauldron. I'm Josh altman Chauffeur, and joining me as always, a bard. He sings, he entertains, he has the hands of an artist. You don't know who he is, but he'll sing of your dastardly deeds. He's the minstrel of minstrels, the balladeer to the grandest courts in all the land. He's only waiting for an invitation. He's Michael Farmer. Hey, Michael. Hi, Josh. I'm just glad you didn't call me an assistant pig keeper. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, you, you. well, actually, in this movie, I think that's a, that's a noble thing to be an assistant pig keeper, potentially. Um, but along with us today, we have another uh, special guest, um, and he really needs no introduction, especially on this network. He is one-third of the Mothership podcast that started it all, and I think he's been a guest on nearly every sh- other show on the network, so... Um, He's just checking us off the list, I think. Uh, he's the one and only Nathan Gilmore. <laughs> hey, Nathan. Howdy, Josh. Thanks for having me on board. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here. It's uh, I've I've not been on an episode with you ever, but I've uh, long listened to you. So um, I guess that that puts me in the first time caller, long time listener <laughs> on my on my well, own show. <laughs> well, I suppose I've got about the same status for this show, so it is good. Yeah. Are there any other uh, podcasts on the network you have not not been a uh, guest on yet? Oh goodness! I mean, I never did go on Pietus Schoolman, and then yeah, that was something I wasn't sure about. Yeah, other than that, I'm not sure. I, I feel have like you been I've on been on Book on... of Nature, Nathan. Did, were you uh, on for a Denver Halloween crossover? crossover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you were. Yeah. So and then I think I've been on City of Man on a Halloween crossover. So I've kind of been strategic on my uh, crossover appearances. You've definitely been on more than I have, because I've never been on Christian Feminist, I think, and I've never been on um, Book of Nature. Okay. Hmm. I'm surprised you've never been on Christian Feminist, Michael. I, I, I would have guessed think, that you huh? would have been. Maybe, I think maybe I was on that for the Firefly episode, because I, um, I know it was me and Victoria and David and Katie. Yeah, I so think that's that, right, Michael. That may have been CFP. Yeah, because I was the... I was the host for Christian Humanist for that very first crossover. Yeah, and for those who don't know what we're talking about, um, there every every October, um, the Christian Humanist Network does a crossover event where the hosts from the different shows join up, and we all uh, talk around a 
similar theme or similarly like a series or something like that. So do either of you want to preview what's coming up or just leave that uh, to the other shows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I can. Um, we're doing Stephen King books this year. And I don't have the list in front of me, but I'm on Christian Humanist, and we're doing um, Misery. And Nathan is on Christian Feminist, and they're doing Carrie. And then I think somebody's doing The Shining and Pet Cemetery. I think it's on Sectarian Review. I don't know. I've never read Stephen King, so this is new for me. It, it was my turn. <laughs> it was my turn to helm the CHP one. Um, so we'll see. I'm kind of afraid to read Misery. <laughs> Well, it sounds like a lot of fun, and uh, so we'll be looking for those to drop at uh, the end of this month, right? They all right. they usually drop at the end of October. Yep. So the last the last episode, which I I can't remember what show it is, will air on Halloween, and so all, all of those podcasts will be have an episode leading up to it. It's not everything. Core Curriculum won't have one. This show won't have one. And Pied a Schoolman, which is kind of a part of our network, we we distribute them, but we don't we don't produce them. They right. um. We've, I think we've always offered it to Garrett and, you know, he, he, he's not interested, which is, you know, his right. No, no hard feelings. Um, <laughs> but they, so they won't be doing one, but, uh, and Christian pro, humanist profiles obviously won't be doing one. Never could figure out how to make that happen. Unless we could get an interview with Stephen King, which would be really something, wouldn't it? That would be something. And see, I was, I was thinking, you know, have NT right on to talk about a Stephen King, King book, but that might not work either. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, though he's so widely read, I would be surprised if he's not ever uh, at least picked up something, but maybe not. Um, but yeah. Anyway, that is not what we were uh, talking about today. Today we were talking about the Black Cauldron. Um, as it's I mentioned, still kind it's of a Halloweeny the, movie, right? It is a, a little bit, yeah. Um, yeah, this one uh, it holds a special place in my heart, uh, even though I just saw it for the first time this week, um, because it was it was one of the main uh, drivers for getting the show started is um, I was recognizing uh, that there was uh, films in the Disney canon I'd never seen um, and knew very little about. And I thought, well, I should, I, it'd be fun to watch through all of them. And so I just kind of threw out in on Twitter in a half joking way. Um, you know, if anybody is uh, interested in watching through all the Disney movies with me and uh, Michael uh, generously picked up that offer. So uh, th- this was par- somewhat the birthplace of the show. And so here we are 25 um, in and we finally get to it do you want to talk about why oh. you haven't hadn't seen it yet josh because there's real material conditions that kept you from seeing it well i, I i'll fill in a little bit and then i'll let you guys jump in but uh i think for a long time it's just uh at, at least in my experience it was just not known like i think you know we grew up in the uh, all three of us are pretty close in age and we, we grew up in the Disney Renaissance era. Um, so the, you know, this is kind of when Disney marketing got into full swing, um, started doing the Disney princesses and all that sort of stuff. And it was, so it was the new movies and it was, uh, the princess movies and, um, you know, it was what the, you know, was on ABC, uh, had the, you know, family movie night or whatever that was. You guys remember those? Um, where you would see these. Uh, there's the package films, or, or not the not the World War II era package films, but like the um, that we've mentioned several times on this show, like the VHSs or the you know the specials or the Valentine special where they'd put clips together. I don't think this movie was ever you know involved in any of those marketing schemes, um, and it was. 
seemingly it was marketed towards, uh, you know, trying to expand when they said, you know, films for the whole family, they were trying to expand that into um, teenage boys, it seems like for this movie in particular. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess that it's, I guess that never went anywhere. I can't think of another movie in the, in the, um, in the canon as we're calling it, that, that is anywhere close to this as far as seems to be directed at that sort of audience. Maybe, uh, like Hunchback of Notre Dame or something like that, but that's that's the closest that I can think of. Well, the the other thing is this movie came out in 1985, so I was three and I think you were four, Josh. Uh, but then it wasn't released on home video until 2000 or 2001, so we were already in college when it came out on home video. So we we are exactly the right age to have not been able to see it in the movie theater and to have the home video release be too late for us. So. Almost literally, there was no way for you to see it when you were growing up. And as you as you mentioned, it's kind of the redheaded stepchild of the Disney Studios. They have done their very best to pretend like it doesn't exist for, you know, understandable reasons. It nearly bankrupted the studio. <laughs> well, and honestly, that's where my fascination with the movie came in, because I was eight years old, so I did see this one in the theater. Uh, but then, you know, as you said, it didn't, uh, hit video until 2000, so I was out of college. Uh, so once that happened, I mean, I remembered having seen it in the movies. I didn't remember much about it, but I immediately wanted to go out and, you know, find a copy of it and see it to see, you know, what had been hidden for so much of my young life. Yeah, it's kind of funny that you use that word hidden there because that's, I mean, that's the whole premise of the movie is that there's this black cauldron <laughs> that's hidden from everybody and nobody can find it. And then Disney literally hid the black cauldron, right? And the movie, <laughs> so, like indeed. the black cauldron it. itself, is full of evil power. Nice. <laughs> Destructive power, the power to, you know, the, we, we've watched a number of movies that almost destroyed the studio. Um and it's interesting that at any at this late stage, so um, the first movie is 1937, is that right, or 39? I can't remember. I think it's 39. So the first movie is 1939. It's it's now 46 years into the into the Disney Animation Studio doing full length features, and still this movie is so uh, so poorly received by audiences that it almost bankrupts the studio. It really very nearly put an end to Walt Disney animated features, which is crazy. It's crazy to think about that. It's hard to think of them putting out a movie now that was so big of a flop that they would stop making movies. Oh, yeah, definitely. Although they did um, come close in the 2000s, right? Like they were, I think before the whole Pixar deal, they, well, they they literally did shutter the the whole 2D animation um, zone. But I think they were, I think there was probably talk um, uh, however serious it was of, of shutting down the, even the, the animated features entirely, I would guess, um, before the, the Pixar merger. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I, I would imagine it's true. And, and as you say, they did regrettably stop making 2D pictures. Um, it's funny, you don't think of these um, multinational corporations as being as fragile as they apparently are. The, the, the idea that something a big as a, a as big a powerhouse as disney could fail so spectacularly that it just ceased to exist I, I guess it's still possible if they if they sank millions and millions of dollars into something and it came up empty at the box office maybe it would stop them from making movies which at this point i'm not sure would be such a bad thing but <laughs> <laughs> 
I keep I keep hoping one of the live action films will flop so hard they never make another one, but thus far, no luck. Do you have something you want to add in there, Nathan? Yeah, I, and I'm sure you guys will talk about this. You know, whenever you get to this, it might be a, a few years still. But uh, where does uh, Princess and the Frog fit into that? Because I feel like it kind of fell in between uh, a couple of the 3D animation movies. Was that just a? It, it did. Was that just a one-off thing? Are they done now, or is that still yeah, a possibility? So, so they shuttered 2D animation after the movie Home on the Range, which I, I don't know how the soundtrack is really pretty good, but I've never seen the movie. Uh, Katie Lang, I think, did the soundtrack of all people, and I, I would listen to Katie Lang sing anything. Um, but so, so they shuttered it after that, and then they made a just to prove that the problem was not 2D animation. They made a series of truly execrable 3D animated movies, probably most notoriously Chicken Little, starring Zach Braff. That's a terrible movie. Um, Princess and the Frog came out in 2009. So it's five years after Home on the Range. And I think it was a kind of trial balloon to see if it would be profitable to do 2D animation again. And the movie didn't do very well, so that didn't happen. And there is one other 2D feature after Princess and the Frog, which is the next year or two years later, they did Winnie the Pooh, which I think came and went without anybody even knowing it happened. I don't think they put a whole lot of advertising money behind that movie but it also did not do very well and so at least for the foreseeable future and i can't imagine bob Iger taking any real chances for aesthetic reasons uh we're not going to see any more 2d features which is a shame i mean the 3d animation looks good but nothing really replaces 2d in my mind and i thought princess and the frog was a really lovely movie oh i really enjoyed that one yeah yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like uh, you wonder what the alternate universe would be like where this if this movie had done well um, and they had expanded like the I guess. I mean, it really seems like it's a, a an American or maybe Western um, sort of sensibility and taste that these movies can't really be for older audiences or it needs to be, you know, fun for the whole family or whatever. I, I mean, I know that's not the case in Japan. Um, and you know, I really, I love the studio Ghibli films and I mean, some of them are, are definitely aimed at kids, but often, uh, you know, I'd say maybe half of them or more are not. And, you know, it's, uh, it'd be interesting if, if Disney was also in that arena, but, um, yeah, they've abandoned all that. So, um, this as a, as a non-anime fan, this movie felt more like an anime to me than like a Disney movie, but I, I don't know anime very well. So yeah. that that may just be me saying it doesn't fit very well into the, you know, to the Fox and the Hound or the Great Mouse Detective, the movie before and after it. Right. I felt the same um, as a, you know, a somewhat anime fan, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely it didn't have all the, you know, all the Japanese touchstones of things. You know, it's still definitely a Western style um, telling of stories. But uh, yeah, just I think I think the tone of it was was obviously directed towards uh, a little bit of an older audience. Um, I felt like they hedged their bets on that a few times in the movie and, and uh, tried to strike a little younger too. But um, yeah, it did, it did feel as a, a bit like an older movie. Well, and it was appealing to the young boys of the 1980s. And I mean, I'm sure we're going to hit a ton of these as we roll on, but I mean, the, the sound of it, the look of the characters, I mean, there's just so many things in this movie uh, that are in the mid-80s zeitgeist. Um, the one I picked up on was Masters of the Universe. Oh, heavens yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, your main villain looks like Skeletor. He lives 
in I'm pretty much sure it's Castle Grayskull without the drawbridge. Um, and I mean, you know, even along with that, you get a whole lot of visual echoes of the video game uh, Dragon's Lair. I was thinking Dragon's Lair too. Yeah, I mean, which is you know, of course, animated by Don Bluth. Uh, who I don't think was involved with this movie, was he? No, he left after Fox and the Hound. Actually, he left during Fox and the Hound. Okay, all right. But I, I'm the way these movies overlap. I, I would be surprised if he he wasn't, uh, you know, at least you know there there may have been some you know pre thought or they they knew this movie was coming while Don Bluth was there. I imagine, but yeah, right. yeah, he'd left the studio a few years before this. And then the score is you know by the same guy who did Ghostbusters. Um, so I that mean, was you know, the thing I picked up on immediately. I I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, they either completely ripped off the score of Ghostbusters or the guy who did Ghostbusters named his name's Elmer Bernstein or Bernstein. Yes, I'm yes. not sure how to pronounce mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I was like, uh, he got paid twice for the same song. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same. It's the year after, isn't it? Because it's 1985 and Ghostbusters is 84. right, and Dragon's Lair is 1983. So. I mean, definitely draw. Dragon's Lair, one of the most famously unplayable video games of all time. Oh yes, indeed. I uh, I think I played that twice when I was about seven years old, and realized that even at that young age, that it was a sucker's game. Yeah. So all, all that said, Nathan, the the way you've just described it, I I I feel like my opening statement on this movie is I'm 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 ready to be because um, I. <laughs> I enjoyed it, but having never seen it, you know, like having it not really be part of part of me, like I, I, I think if I would have seen it in those, you know, in that crucial 80s moment when I was that kid, um, I, I would be a major fan of this movie. But with Disney hiding it away and and my not seeing it until yesterday, um, <laughs> I, I came out like I'm I'm just not sure. I'm kind of on the edge. Like, is this a good movie or not? So, um, yeah, you you guys are free to free to convince me during the course of this episode that I should love it. <laughs> I, it's not a good movie, but it's also not a bad movie. It's not nearly as bad as its reputation would have you believe. I would take this movie over The Aristocats, over Sword in the Stone, probably over Fox and the Hound, because I, I think it's at least trying to do something ambitious and different, even if I don't think it's terribly successful. But, I mean, there there are definitely things to recommend this movie. Um, I, I I was imagining something truly abominable, and it's not that. No, there's definitely moments in this movie, I mean, that are doing pretty smart things. It's just that it doesn't sustain it long enough to, like you said, make it a, a good movie as a whole. You can kind of feel the boardroom behind it. You You can feel a tension between what the animators wanted to do and what the executives would let them do. And in particular, uh, I, I we finally get to mention this guy because he's responsible um, for a lot of good and bad things about animation in the 1980s and 1990s. Jeffrey Katzenberg had 12 minutes of this movie cut out, um, mostly because he was afraid the movie would get an R rating. you got to remember, before Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, there was no such thing as a PG-13 rating. So you would either get a PG rating, which is what this movie got. Um, it's the first Disney movie to have a PG rating. Or you'd get an R rating. And it, it, I, I don't have the DVD, so I didn't get to watch the deleted footage, but I was reading about it, and it does sound remarkably scary. Um, when the army of the undead rises from the Black Cauldron at the end of the movie, supposedly... Um, they kill a person and he turns into the army of the undead. So this is the movie I think the animators wanted to make something that was genuinely adult and frightening and Katzenberg and the other suits 
pushed back on that and kind of neutered the movie. Right, and you get you get a glimpse of that because I mean, there's a moment that never gets explained and never gets revisited, where Creeper is taking a covered wheelbarrow into the castle, and yeah. like a leg comes out of it, and it's very clear that he's I thought that was really well that done. he's got a, a wheelbarrow full of dead bodies that he's hauling in to be reanimated. Yeah, it it. Fox and the Hound, as we talked about last week or last month, is a scary movie, right? It's it's disturbing. There's there's a lot of um, it's it's a bleak movie. This is even bleaker, and the version they wanted to do was apparently remarkably bleak. So I think executive meddling, as they say over at the at TV tropes, I, I think is responsible for some of the failures of this movie. Although I won't say all of them. Yeah, that's interesting, and um, I think I believe Jeffrey Katzenberg is still in the animation industry, or has he left it by now? I know that he he had a big he f- hand. He found in, a DreamWorks. Yeah, I knew that he had a big hand in that, um, and that there was a, Shrek is his is his baby. Shrek, one of the worst animated movies of all time, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I hate the Shrek movies. Right. Although DreamWorks did give us Prince of Egypt, so I, I'm I'm still a fan. Katzenberg rather famously wanted Toy Story to be more 90s. He wanted it to uh, he wanted Woody to have an attitude, I think. That's hard to imagine. That really is. Yeah, if you if you read about what he wanted to do to Toy Story, it's clear that he had really no conception of what makes that movie great. Yeah, so and, I, I don't have a lot of respect for Katzenberg. <laughs> right, and I think I'm on I'm on the wrong side of the fandom for it because, as, like, as you, like, I, I don't care for the Shrek movies. I, I care very little for for anything that's that's come out of DreamWorks. But um, I think there is a real interesting parallel between him and uh, Bluth, and it's interesting that they're kind of you know they they cross paths at Disney for a little while, like because you if you watch the um, you know, the Don Bluth movies, you can kind of see like that inner tension that was building in Disney prior to his departure and the direction they both chose to go, um, you know, through their through their movies. And I think you see the same thing with um, Katzenberg because Katzenberg has such a big hand in in a lot of the Disney revival. And so we don't need to spend forever on him because I'm sure that we'll do it as 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 we go through the 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 Disney Renaissance era. But, you know, the um the celebrity voices and the, um, you know, some like some of the, you know, the humor, um, and you and you really see where Disney could have could have gone the direction of DreamWorks, you know, and they didn't partly because Katzenberg got pushed out and started his own studio, and they they took all of that energy with them, you know, for better or for worse, um, and uh, and Disney went the other direction. So I, I think there's there are some interesting parallels there. Yeah, the, and the, the the big guy on the other side, and, and this is another name that's going to come up a lot in the next two decades of, of movies, is Michael Eisner, who is the CEO of Disney at, at this time. And, and he's the one who kind of pushed back on Katzenberg and wouldn't like him, let him make all the cuts he wanted to make. And Eisner's a very controversial figure uh, at Disney. I mean, there, there is no doubt that he saved the company. Uh, you, you just, I, I don't know that you could argue he didn't. He's also responsible for some of the lamest stuff to happen at Disney in the 1990s. Um, so, uh, as of right now, he's still kind of heroic. Um, as of 1985, I mean, but, uh, as the, as the nineties wear on in particular, Eisner has a lot of 
I, I think, really remarkably dumb decisions. And I'm mostly familiar with what he did at the theme park. So he's responsible. There's a there's an attraction, um, a, a I think opening day attraction, but maybe not called uh, the the Enchanted Tiki Room. And and he's responsible for taking that in the mid '90s and changing it into a very, uh, you know, '90s radical version with uh, Iago and Zazu from Aladdin and uh, and The Lion King. And it's, I mean, that version is terrible. I'm sure you can find a copy of it online. Um, he he does a lot of things like that. Um, I. When I think of Eisner, and I don't know if he had any hand in this, but I always think of the uh, mid-90s Mickey Mouse rap album, where Mickey Mouse is a kind of G-rated gangster. Uh, that, that's, that's the sort of move I associate with Eisner. But, it, you know, he's, he's the one who's preventing Katzenberg from cutting half an hour out of this movie instead of just 12 minutes. So, I, you know. We have him to think that the movie's not worse than it is, I guess is what I'm saying. There you go. Yeah. Well, with all that preamble, that was quite a bit. Uh, we should we should probably dive into the movie itself. Um, where where do you guys want to begin on this one? Well, can we start with the, uh, the opening voiceover? Um, I mean, this is, like you guys said, I mean, such a departure from what we've seen before in Disney animated films. I mean, we get... Uh, I believe it's John Hurt doing the narration, uh, saying that, you know, there once was a being, quote, so cruel and so evil that even the gods feared him, close quote. Uh, and I mean, I, I just, you know, try to compare that to, I, I guess you get something like that in Sleeping Beauty, uh, but even then, I mean, it's, it's, it's this is, uh, you know, a, a figure that is, you know, certainly Darth Vader. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. And who talks like the sure. Emperor from Return of the Jedi. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, you get this beginning that is, like Michael said, just so very bleak and, and really so very pagan. You know, I mean, this is a creature, a creature who is from centuries past, uh, who, you know, is trapped in this artifact that later on in the movie he's not sure if it exists, which I wasn't sure about that. Um, but, you know, there is a, a threat that is not merely a threat to the main characters, but to the world writ large. Have we seen anything like that in any of the previous movies? I don't think we've seen anything like this since Fantasia. Like when we saw the... Uh, That's right. Um, what What is the name of that one? Um, Chernbog is that his name? It's the night on Bald Bald Mountain. Yes, that's right. Yes, um, and so that's that's the only thing that really um, I could think of that was any anywhere near the tone of this. Um, I will say that that opening voiceover really uh, drew me in immediately. I was like, oh wow, I I don't know what I'm in for right now, but I'm 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 uh, I'm willing to find out. You know, I'm not a I'm not a particularly like dark movie type person, as you probably figured out from listening to these episodes, but. Um, yeah, it just it, it was it was so totally different. I was like, oh, okay, this is this is interesting and and kind of fun. I'm 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 curious where this goes. Um, you made a point there, Nathan, that uh, just a, a minor plot point that that was confusing to me. So is the is the horned king the same guy who is trapped in the cauldron, or is he a separate guy who's just trying to pull on the guy who's trapped in the cauldron's um, power? Oh, that's interesting. I. 
for some reason I thought the opening narration said that the trapped being was the Horn King, but I could have I could have been uh, conflating those two. Michael, what do you think? Uh, if if the Horned King was trapped in the Black Cauldron, how uh, how did he get out? how does he get out? Yeah, point taken, point taken. No, I I assume he's trying to draw on the power of this mythological king. Okay, that actually makes more sense of it. Oh, well, I did think the movie was not clear on the point though, because um, they do seem to talk about him as though um, it's almost like. Uh, to, there's a lot of Lord of the Rings in this movie, and so it it seemed very much like me of like Sauron kind of looking for his ring, you know, like his essence is somehow tied into it. Um, and so when he finds it, then he'll be able to be whole again or something, you know. Is like I kind of got that vibe, but it, but then I also was not sure if it was the reading that you just had, Michael, where it was he's a separate guy trying to just pull on this ancient power, and so I, I do feel like the movie maybe it's in the Maybe it's in the last 12 minutes. <laughs> well, I, I, I think there's a lot of confusing stuff in this movie because they're adapting very loosely two entire books in the series. Now, I haven't read. Have either of you read? Is it called The Chronicles of Pyrene? Yeah, I've not read any of the source material. Yeah, supposedly, supposedly, it's quite different from this, and they're leaving a bunch of stuff out, and they're conflating characters, and I think that prologue was added in order to kind of tie up some loose ends but as as i think we're noting it doesn't really tie that much up right right but you, but you see this throughout right there's all these things that are hinted at but never explained so it, it's clear that the bard i can't what's his name fluwin his fluter. welsh fluter. name fluter he um it's clear that when he lies his harp strings break and it seems like the movie is going to explain that and then never does. Right. But I think it's explained in the book. So I, I think there's a lot of stuff like that. Or or like um, the, the princess is called a scullery maid, which seems to me to suggest that she's not a princess at all. But the movie drops the thread. And I think she is a princess in the books. But there is a reason, apparently, why she's called scullery maid that the movie never explains. Now, I kind of like that. It, it makes it feel in its way more real because it's less tidy. But also, it is confusing if you try to put all the pieces together. Yeah, the other major one on that is that she has this magical bobble um, that is never explained. It never seems to do anything except for scare away rats and disappears for long periods of time. <laughs> like, you're like, yeah, well, yeah, just and there's no explanation as to where it goes. I, I'm sure they could have used it. Yeah, and like you said, there is a, there is something about that 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 is genuinely appealing. It makes it it makes it feel like more of a real world. But um, yeah, on the other hand, there's a a sense of of wanting a little more uh, tightness to the narrative, maybe. But imagine if um, they never made another Star Wars movie, and and when the original Star Wars came out, that's all there was, and that's all anybody had, and it must have very much felt like that, right? Because there's all these holes in the universe in Star Wars, in the, the original A New Hope, they call it. But those holes get filled in, for better or for worse, as the series progresses. And, I, you know, they, they bought the rights to the entire series of books that this is based on. And then because this was such a flop, they never made the other ones. And maybe they would have explained it. Maybe some of those holes would have been filled in. Who knows? Right, right. I mean, you know, the... Oh, what was the other one that I... Well, I mean, really, the Horn King's motivation is ultimately what remains mysterious for me, because 
Uh, at one moment, you know, he says that, you know, then you will worship me. How long have I thirsted to be a god? But then later on in the movie, it's destroy everything in your path. And, you know, I wondered, you know, because I'm watching this at the age of 42, uh, who is there to worship him as a god if, he, if they destroy everything in their path? Well, part of it is that the, the, the use of the cauldron clearly makes him go crazy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think some motivation creep makes sense uh, there because I, he's very clearly not in his right mind at the end of the movie. That's why his eyes go red, and I, it's a, a truly frightening piece of animation. So yeah, it's a it's a kind of incomplete movie, and I don't know if that was by design because they expected sequels, or it's because Katzenberg chopped it up, or if it's just because the people making the movie were not as competent as we would like them to be. I don't know. Right, right, and and I just found the the opening lines, and you're right. It doesn't call him the Horned King, whatever it was that went into the cauldron. It it does call him a king, though. So I think I conflated those two king figures. Well, anywhere from <laughs> whatever whatever the uh, <laughs> the opening plot seems to be, um, it jumps from there to um, a little um, hovel, I guess, if I'm using that word correctly. Um, there's some sort of uh, wizardy magician there and a young a young uh what's his name i, I forgot his name already uh the main Tara, kind of Taren, character. yeah yeah Taryn is there and uh they are pig herders um or at least yeah. there's there's a single pig um yeah, I gotta, there's a I, single I, pig <laughs> <laughs> yeah i got his name henwin a... which is a chicken name <laughs> Yeah, I, I got a bit of a uh, – this is a second swing at um, some of the Sword in the Stone stuff um, vibe out of this yes, section of the movie. absolutely. Also more Star Wars, right? Oh, yeah, the farm boy who wants to go to war. But supposedly that plot is in the books, which is before Star Wars, so we should avoid seeing it as too direct a ripoff. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. But definitely Sword of the Stone. I, I, the, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, this is, uh, this is going to be a rewrite of Sword in the Stone, which in some ways it is. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Except instead of Merlin, who you know is sort of a, a sorcerer physicist, you get Dalbin, who's a more you know, focused porcomancer. <laughs> I, li- I like that. <laughs> that's, that's very good. <laughs> Well, but I mean, I, and again, I, I've not read the novels, but I mean, when Taryn says Dalvin doesn't understand, I mean, that is straight up Luke Skywalker. Yeah. And honestly, every like kind of pre-adolescent or just adolescent, um, you know, the, the, you know, I mean, it's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air too, right? Like parents just don't understand. <laughs> <It's>, um... <laughs> Well, I think I think the TV show Fresh Prince of Bel Air is actually a loose adaptation of the same novels. Hey. <laughs> but it's I mean for that matter, it's it's Ariel, it's it's Belle, it's Princess Aurora from Sleeping Beauty. It's it's I mean every as as Josh is pointing out, it's every character at the beginning of a movie like this. I'm sure Joseph Campbell has something to say about it. Right, right. And there is I mean a really nice moment, I think. I mean when he goes to the uh, the pool of water, and he sees the reflection of himself as the true hero. I mean, you know, it's an invocation of the Narcissus myth, and it is, you know, uh, this idea that, you know, what he imagines himself to be uh, is ultimately keeping him from 
doing what needs done here and now. Yeah, I didn't catch the uh, the reference to narcissist there, but that that's I think that's really right. That's that's dead on. The, you know, his heroism is strange, right? Because he imagines that he's going to be a great warrior, uh, but he's not. All all of his victories in battle are because he has a magical sword, and and the degree to which he's a hero at all is kind of up for debate because he's not even the one who sacrifices himself. So his arc is not the pig farmer who becomes a hero. His arc is the pig farmer who is brave, but kind of adjacent to the real heroism. Right. That makes sense. I do think that is a different, that's a different route than most movies like this take, which is kind of cool. It was kind of cool. It was very unexpected for me. Um, because I really thought that he was going to be the one who goes into the cauldron, um, not to jump too far to the end of the movie, but, um, then he doesn't. Uh, and again, there was a bit of a Lord of the Rings feel there where, um, uh, you know, Frodo is sure that he's going to have to be the one to sacrifice himself in the end. And then, uh, and then Jar Jar Binks goes in. Yeah. Yes. He's Jar Jar Binks. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) that'll be the version of the story in the, you know, when they're when they're piecing together our our world <laughs> in five hundred years, years or whatever, and they're trying to find out what our myths were, they'll they'll they'll, they'll put it together that way. Um, but yeah, the uh, what I was going to say was um, I did think that was an interesting turn. I think what we're supposed to see is that he sacrifices his his dream of being that hero because he doesn't accept the sword back at the end. He wants his his. Uh, he wants Jar Jar back, and so that's that's his moment of heroism, maybe. Yeah, but it's a very it's a very alternate view of what heroism even is, and I, I appreciated that because so much in this movie feels by the books that 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 character arc. I, I mean, I'm sure there are other movies and other stories that use it, but it's it's certainly not the standard one. Oh, not standard at all. But I I think it is the. Um, I, I actually felt like it tied in quite a bit to some of the themes that we've been seeing the last few months here on the show, Michael, of, you know, doing doing the small thing, you know, like he doesn't he doesn't realize the importance of taking care of the, the pig. Like the pig is is a key, um, you know, key part of the plot, but he doesn't know it and doesn't realize it. Um, he, you know, he's got these dreams of glory. And uh, but then at the end, um, you know, he's kind of sacrificed that. That I mean, like he has learned the lesson. Um, so even though it is a, um, I don't know, an alternate sort of way to learn it, I think it, it's it was it was actually quite effective because, you know, it's not the hero learning that war is not the answer by becoming a great warrior as <laughs> it usually is, right? Like it's the hero become like understanding that war is not the answer by uh, putting down a sword, his magic sword. Well, can we talk about Gurgi? I mean, you know, this is a character that, you know, one of the few things that I remembered from 1985 when I finally went back and revisited it, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, and, of course, by that time, I mean, we had Jar Jar Binks. So, I mean, you know, I I always wondered whether someone in uh, the Episode 1 writer's room had been a secret fan of Black Cauldron and was visiting his revenge on the world. Um but it's interesting because Gurgi, I mean, in a movie where everyone so far, except for the Horn King, has had an English accent, all of a sudden he's got this weird quasi-American accent. And then, you know, 
his entrance, and this is one of the places where I think the ah the pacing breaks down pretty severely. Yeah, he, he makes his appearance, and it's a very long appearance. Uh, just after Henwin has been abducted, so it takes all of the tension out of that peril. Also, he moves from wanting to steal Terran's apple to pledging his fealty to Terran way too quickly. Like, I, it, it makes no sense to me that he sees him as a friend or uh, or wishes to follow him or, or feels like he owes him anything. It, that that was very poorly done, speaking of pacing. Yeah, I agree. Also, I hate this character. I hated him from the moment he appeared on the screen, and I never stopped hating him even when he sacrificed himself. <laughs> but I'm sure our listeners predicted that. I yeah the the moment and I don't know about our listeners but the moment he hopped out of that tree or bush or wherever he was I said Michael hates this character. <laughs> and nice, <I> <laughs> nice. Well, and then his counterpart and and you know to to your point I I knew that Gergi was going to be the one who sacrificed himself I was I was pretty sure he was the one who was going to throw himself into the cauldron, um just because that that's his arc right his arc is he starts this movie being very selfish. Um, and and so he's he's being moved toward genuine heroism. It's again, um, I don't like the character. I found the performance really annoying. But that's an interesting way to tell this story. Well, and it's not your uh, straightforward moral heroism story either, because his last line when he goes in is not "I'm going to save my friends," but Gergi has no friends. So I mean, it's a it's a nihilistic right. kind of a heroism. I mean, honestly, I mean it's a it it adds a complexity to it that I mean there's so much else in this movie that seems uh, accidental that I'm not sure they did it on purpose but if they did man I mean that's a that's a bleak moment. Too bad they brought him back. <laughs> I was surprised that you saw it coming, Michael. I don't I don't what what did you see in the movie that that gave you a I'm I'm just curious about like what what tipped you off that he was going to be the one that goes in. So um, when Taryn decides to go to the castle, he calls uh, he calls Gergi a coward. And so I assumed what was going to happen was Gergi was going to be the deus ex machina that rescued him from the castle. And when that didn't happen, I, and Gergi was still in the movie, I figured he had to do something to redeem that moment. And, um, you know, what better way to do it than to stop all evil in the world? Yeah, well done. <laughs> but he does it, again, not as a, you know, I know what life is worth and I sacrifice it nonetheless, but my life doesn't mean anything, so in I go. Yeah, that's true. Are there some other examples of that sort of um, nihilistic heroism, as you called it, Nathan, and that that you think this is, is pulling from or referencing? I really don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of, you know, are there 80s antecedents? But I mean, the 80s artifacts that I think of, the Masters of the Universe and the G.I. Joe and the Star Wars movies, I mean, tend to be a lot more straightforward, right? I mean, when Han Solo comes back to, you know, be Luke Skywalker's wingman in A New Hope, I mean, it's a genuine moral conversion. It's not you know, I've realized my life doesn't mean anything, so I might as well take a laser blast that, you know, plants me in deep space. 
I mean, this this is this is something new, I think. And I don't know if that's true to the books, which which would explain it, I think, because you would expect a a, a book series to be um, more boundary breaking than a Disney feature. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, can we talk about uh, Gurgi's counterpart, uh, Creeper? Uh, because, like I said, yeah. I mean, you know, that moment when he, when he has the wheelbarrow full of dead bodies that are never explained and never revisited, uh, that's a weird little moment. There's also the moment when he realizes that the Horned King has been destroyed, and he has that moment where it looks like he's genuinely lamenting his, you know, cruel master, but then he starts doing this creepy little dance and eventually flies off on a dragon you know, cackling like a Disney version of Euripides Medea. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, if I don't know what to do with Gurgi, I sure as heck don't know what to do with Creeper. Creeper's interesting to me because he, he seems like he's going to be the kind of comedic villain that so many of these movies have, but he's not really all that comedic. Right, like you, you almost feel bad for him, but also he's scary. Like he, he, he wants to kill people. He's he's a he's a real threat in a way that somebody like Mister Smee is not. Yeah, absolutely. Right, absolutely. Or, or even the henchman, even the henchman from Sleeping Beauty, um, with whom he would uh, appear to share a great deal of DNA, are comedically stupid. And Creeper's not comedically stupid. He's he's frightening and and a pity. Uh, 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 a source of pity because I mean the first thing we see from him is him being swatted away from the uh, the roast turkey that all the all the henchmen are eating. So he he's an interesting character um, to me. Maybe maybe the most interesting character in the movie. Yeah, his only real point of comedy I think is when he goes in and uh, uh, offers to choke himself. <laughs> he says, "No, no, I'll do it," and then. Uh, uh, it was kind of funny, but you're right. It doesn't quite fit with the rest of his uh, his his time in the movie and the, and the type of character that he is. Well, and again, if the, it, well, and even at the, even at the end when he's he's fly, he's riding the flying dragon, he's carrying the horned king's horns, and it's it's not clear to me whether he's not going to be evil himself. You know, if he's it, maybe he's taking up the mantle of the horned king. Yeah, that makes a good good deal of sense. Uh, you know, I mean the. The choking himself bit, I mean, that, that's straight out of an episode of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, too. So, I mean, I, if that happens in the novels, then I'll grant that that's, a, you know, derived from that source. But, I mean, as far as, you know, selecting that detail from the novels to be in the film, uh, again, I mean, that's a, that's a note to the 1985 moment. I, I'm surprised you remember so much about Masters of the Universe, Nathan. I, I watched it as a kid, but I haven't seen it or thought about it since then well i haven't really till i started uh i haven't either till i watched this movie and realized how much of it is in there uh now i did uh show a few episodes to my kids when they were younger and remembered i mean just how blatantly uh crappy those cartoons were and I, well it's it just to sell toys, well yeah yeah but... i mean they were they were 20 minute commercials ah the 1980s is there a bit of um, Wizard of Oz in him as well, though? Like, uh, yeah, when the uh, when the queen melts in the Wizard of Oz, don't all the uh, the henchmen? Re- it's been 
30 years since I watched Wizard of Oz, but isn't that true that they all, isn't there a song, you know, like they all rejoice that she's dead? Uh, yes. Do they so, sing a so song? what, what happens? Okay, is, go ahead. I, I don't know if they sing a song, but the, the, the Wicked Witch of the West dies and one of them goes, you killed her. She's dead. And then there's this moment where you think they're going to be mad at Dorothy, just like, as there's a moment when you think Creeper's going to be upset. And then they rejoice because, you know, the 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 evil person's henchmen are as abused as anybody else, um, which I, I think is a is a nice detail. But yeah, straight out of the Wizard of Oz. The difference though is that in the Wizard of Oz, they immediately swear fealty to Dorothy as their new witch or their new queen, right? Whereas, like you said, yep. Michael, I mean, you know, uh, Creeper flies off into the sunset to presumably be creepy somewhere else. Yep, that's a that's a good good point. I'm in, I'm interested as well what you guys think about the fairies because once again I mean uh, first of all just the voice acting I found interesting because only one of them has an English accent the rest of them have American accents and maybe I'm maybe I'm making too much of this but I mean it it's it's so noticeable when you get a character with a different accent in this movie that you know I I didn't know what quite to do with the fact that all of the fairies are flying around talking like Americans but the you know, the human characters are all English. Is there anything to that, or is that just, uh, you know, you cast who you can cast? It's like uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, say more. I was going to say, you're in the right place for making too much of things. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of what we do. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just thinking about how everybody in that movie has an English accent except for Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah, yeah. Boy, that's another one that I, I hadn't thought about for 30 years before uh, we made that podcast episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think of that. I, I didn't notice. I, it's just a convention, I suppose, that people have whatever accent they have. But do you have a theory about it? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, at first when all of the other fairies, you know, didn't have English accents, I thought, OK, maybe this is going to be a signifier that they are of a different world from, you know, the human characters. Uh, but then when King Idleg starts talking, all of a sudden he has an English accent again. So I, you know, like I said, I, uh, I don't know. And, and I guess, you know, and I, I didn't think about this when I was making my notes for this show, but, uh, I guess it is analogous to what you see once again in the star Wars movies where, you know, any given character might sound, American or English or, you know, Australian, and there's no real uh, rhyme or reason to it. Do you want to make a, um, this is off the top of my head, but um, some sort of a metaphor with World War II, that this is like the, uh, the this is a European uh, problem and the Americans are out of it, <laughs> fighting, <laughs> and, then, and then they get brought in. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but I reckon you could. I will point out that the 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 fairy Dory, I think is his name, the yellow one that's kind of grumpy, is the same voice actor as Gurgi. Oh, okay, okay. I don't I don't know if that means anything, but it does at least explain why those two characters have an American accent. Okay, yeah, that does make sense. Uh, while we're talking about voice acting, this movie has some of the most incompetent voice acting I've ever heard. <laughs> And the the two leads are are just terrible. And I I had the names. I I know that the um the, the princess is played by Susan Sheridan, 
who didn't really do a lot of movies, but was the original voice of Trillion in the BBC Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio play, which I've never listened to. But man, is she is she bad in this? And and most of the time, it's not terrible. Um, you can kind of get by because the movie's not really about the dialogue anyway. But anytime either her or the actor who plays Taryn is called to do heavy emotional stuff, it's it is it's like a high school play. Yeah, it really is. I uh, that's something that I didn't remember from twenty years ago, but it's it's inescapable. I mean, maybe one argument for using celebrity voices for cartoons, which I think is on the whole a bad a bad move, is that you don't get amateurish performances like this. All right, so I, I want to hear a couple sentences there, Michael. Why is that a bad move? I, I don't know, because it's not necessarily, but I'm, I'm thinking of Shrek, um, and I'm, I'm thinking of how distracting Eddie Murphy is in that movie. <laughs> how, how the character just ends up being Eddie Murphy, you know? Rather than having a, a character actor do it, I'll, I mean, maybe I don't have a leg to stand on because I like Pat Buttram in uh, Robin Hood or Phil Harris in Robin Hood, and they're basically just playing their characters from the radio. So, you know, maybe I'm full of it. Maybe I just hate Shrek. Well, or I mean, go ahead, Josh. Oh, I was going to say that's exactly the question I was going to ask you, Michael, because I think I had the exact same thought. Um, you know, like I, my so my thing. My my knowledge of this whole we were talking about at the beginning of Katzenberg leaving and all that sort of stuff like I feel like it kind of came to a, a head um, at, like in the Aladdin era you know like Aladdin is you know the genie is clearly Robin Williams playing himself um, and then like that's the direction that kind of DreamWorks went right like they went with like this is what makes it the that's what makes Aladdin good or that's you know that's what made Aladdin successful so like. Let's take that and run with it. And it wasn't until going through these movies with you and realizing that, you know, Disney was doing the same thing in the 60s with Phil Harris, but I just didn't know it because I was too far removed from his cultural moment. Like, I only know him as Baloo or as Little John. I don't know him as, you know, uh, so I, I do wonder if, like, time heals <laughs> some of that, you know, celebrity acting uh, wounds or if there is a, a difference um a, the, a more substantial difference that, that we could find a leg to stand on on that. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, the, the thing about Aladdin is that's a really excellent performance from Robin Williams. I don't have any complaints about that, even though he is just doing the Robin Williams thing. Um, and there's examples like that. And then there's quieter performances, like uh, Wreck-It Ralph is played by John C. Riley, who's a great actor, and he's really good in, the, in that movie. I haven't seen the second one, but I assume he's really good in that. It's too. a lot of fun. So it's I, a lot of fun. I think... I think I'm just being grumpy. I think I just hate Eddie Murphy in, in Shrek, and especially Mike Myers' stupid Scottish accent in Shrek just makes me so angry. <laughs> no, it was supposed to be Chris Farley, which would have been much better, although the movie probably still would have been terrible. Right. And I, I think there's something to Josh's point there that, you know, because I don't know Phil Harris, uh, you know, it just sounds like Baloo to me. Uh, but because, you know, when I was in junior high and high school, people just worshipped at the altar of Eddie Murphy's stand-up specials, that's all I can hear when I watch Shrek. But it really is a very similar thing. The character, the character Baloo is just Phil Harris's radio persona, to the, to the point where if you listen to the Phil Harris Alice Faye show, it's very difficult to not picture him as a bear. <laughs> But, 
I mean, maybe, maybe again, the distinction here is between good performances and bad performances and well-written parts and poorly written parts. It's not so much that celebrity casting is a problem. It's that they wrote Donkey stupidly so that Eddie Murphy could play him. Yeah, that makes some sense. You know, I mean, Eddie, Eddie Murphy has some funny stuff. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure it's appropriate to listen to his stand-up specials anymore. I think, I think, uh, I think uh, the 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 values uh, of society have changed enough in the intervening 35 years that uh, a lot of a lot of his stand-up is very very uncomfortable now. But I don't know because my problem is not with Eddie Murphy. It's Eddie Murphy in that movie, or Eddie, especially Eddie Murphy in Mulan, where he, he's playing the Eddie Murphy character and feels very very out of place. Yeah, that makes the sense. The other thing, the other thing to think about though is that. Phil Harris was a radio performer, which makes him kind of a natural for animation, which is just radio with pictures, right? And I, so I, I do think, I'm not sure I'm ready to present a theory of it, but I do think that somebody whose persona comes from the radio is probably better equipped to do animation than Eddie Murphy is. But what do I know? I mean, Eddie Murphy, Donkey is a beloved character by most people, I think. Just not by me. <laughs> I didn't much like him either. I do think that there is a point, and not every great actor is a great voice actor. And, um, you know, Pixar famously uses, um, you know, people in the studio if they, you know, if they, uh, like I think um, the one that I'm thinking of is uh, the, the guy in Ratatouille, I think, you know, like, it's just you know somebody uh, somebody in the studio who is um uh, you know they they do the scratch vocals or whatever but then they're like this is perfect you know like your your voice is perfect for this so like fine like matching or bob, the, bob peterson is doug in uh in up yeah um just you know finding the right voice and the right perform like person who's going to give that performance rather than hey we need a celebrity to c- generate the interest in this movie like there there is no interest yes. in the in the story itself in the character itself or, or whatever it's it's let's let's use the celebrity to draw it in i think that may be where where the difference lies but well think about the difference between the robin williams performance in aladdin and the robin williams performance in fern gully the last rainforest if you if you've seen that movie i have not oh well that movie is clearly stunt casting. Um, the the fruit bat is Robin Williams because Robin Williams made a lot of money for Disney in Aladdin. Whereas Robin Williams is the genie in Aladdin is is this, a central part of the movie, but the movie kind of stands and falls on other merits as well. You know what I mean? It's not stunt casting, or at least it doesn't feel like stunt casting to me. Maybe it did at the time. I don't know. I remember loving that movie as a kid and loving the Robin Williams performance in general. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I told you, Michael, that's one I wouldn't mind coming back on this show to talk about if no one else has uh, called dibs. But uh, to return to the Black Cauldron, these performances are really lousy other than John Hurt as uh, as the Horned King. And he's so over the top that I'm not even sure you could call that a great performance, but it, it's certainly not as bad as Taryn. And what is her name? Princess uh, Ida Lewin? Yeah, this this movie's very Welsh. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, can we talk about the witches for a moment? Because uh, I I definitely want to hear you two talk about the echoes that you saw. Because I I when I was watching it, 
I had a hunch that I've seen these characters before, but you two have spent the, uh, you have paid the sustained attention to Disney movies that you can probably name those Echoes better than I can. Huh. Well, can I say one more thing on the voices before we jump into the witches? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry um, about that, Josh. No, not not a problem at all. I was just going back again to, like, thinking about this in the anime um, as an anime genre rather than, uh, you know, our typical Western cartoons is that is one of the advantages of not knowing Japanese is you can listen. You can watch the movie in Japanese with the subtitles on and then you have no idea how good or bad the voice performances are. And I think there's there's a certain charm to that. And I wonder, like, if you watch this movie with the subtitles, (laughs) you know, and uh, and without the voices, you know, like if if it was in Japanese, for example, if it it would have a completely different feel. But um, yeah, that's not really. You mean you don't watch the English dub of Princess Mononoke with Billy Bob Thornton? um, Isn't it Billy Bob Thornton? Yeah, actually, I do. So, um, yeah, I don't want to get too far down this track because I think Nathan's bringing up a, a, a better and more interesting point with, with the, the witches um but uh yes i do i do sometimes watch the dubs as well and uh particularly the billy bob thornton performance is kind of funny to me i think there's yeah there's the uh it's just it's different you know like it's almost it's almost two different movies depending on you know if you watch it with the dubs or if you watch it in japanese it's it's really interesting how much the voice performances do, does affect it so um I think if they went back and redubbed this with competent voice actors, that it could it, it would be a fifteen twenty percent better movie. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, but anyway, we should get back to Nathan's Nathan's question. I didn't I didn't want to lead us lead us far astray there. So, Nathan, do you want to rephrase it for editing yeah, purposes, sure. or should I mean, we just jump in? No, I mean I, I like I said. I mean when I saw the witches. I felt like I was seeing echoes of other Disney movie characters, uh, but I couldn't name which ones. Uh, so I, I was wondering if you two, since you paid this sustained attention to the Disney canon, uh, could point to those echoes better than I could. So what jumped out to me was um, that, uh, but this is this is moving ahead. I, I can't really think going backwards. Like they they reminded me of the Fates. Uh, the three fates in Hercules a little no, bit. No, that's the echo. No, that that is it, Josh. Thank you. I <laughs> it it was it was an itch inside my skull that I could not scratch, and you've just scratched it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they are kind of also in a weird way like a a dark mirror of uh, version of the uh, the good fairies in um, Sleeping Beauty as well. Do you think, Michael? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was just shocked by how sexualized the one witch was, and I don't remember any of their names, but the maiden witch who wants to marry the bard. Like last last month, Wesley was talking about the top three horniest move, uh, moments in Disney movies, and I mean, I don't know that he had seen the Black Cauldron, but my goodness, like that that was that would have earned it the PG rating even without the scary stuff. Oh man, would it ever? Think. Yeah. A lot of attention is paid to that witch's breasts. Yes, indeed. I, <laughs> my, uh, my attention was entirely on the frog between the breasts. I don't know what you guys were watching. <laughs> <laughs> but I found it interesting that at the end of the film, they return as sort of cosmic figures. I mean, they appear in the clouds. They have the ability to restore the dead. I mean, are, are these gods or are they? I mean, what are these witches? They're really more like traditional 
depictions of fairies, don't you think, in the sense that their D&D alignment is true neutral? You know, they're neither good nor bad, neither chaotic nor um, lawful. They, they, they just kind of operate on their own version of morality, and if it happens to align with what you want, great. But if not, you know, too bad for you. Yeah, although they seem to take a certain joy in messing with people. So, I mean, they, they seem to enjoy uh, subverting order more than they do establishing order. So, if we're going to go the Lawful, D&D route, uh, I might chaotic make them chaotic neutral. neutral. Like, like like the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, a lot like that. They are really interesting because they are the ones who have been hiding the Black Cauldron this whole time. And they mention um, at some point that no one's even asked after it in the last 2,000 years. So I think we're supposed to get the idea that these are very, um, very ancient powers, at least. Um, and, yeah, like you, you said, Michael, like, um, there, there's maybe a goodness in the fact that they've been hiding the cauldron. But then they aren't they also aren't too concerned about it. Um, getting into the wrong hands or anything like that. Like it's it's the the magical sword that they've never seen before. That all of a sudden the witches like they they all have a different sort of um craving or desire or lust. I guess if you want to call it that. Um, you know the one is is craving that sword and the other one is craving the minstrel for whatever reason. I don't I don't know if the third one had a craving that was that was clear, but. Well, and you know, I mean. First of all, I mean, the the notion that these, you know, cosmic beings that seem to see and know all things were not aware of this magic sword, I mean, was uh, bizarre. Although it, it, it added a gravity to, you know, the sacrifice of the sword, right? Um, but yeah, like I said, I mean, you know, when they appear at the end, you know, in the clouds, uh, I mean, that's that's not something I was anticipating, that's for sure. And that part, I think, of them being in the clouds like that does give them much more like a, a fate um, sort of feel um, that, that maybe was that itch that you mentioned. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. This movie, in some ways, just felt like a lot of um, – I don't know if trope is too strong a word, but just a lot of, of those kind of fantasy ideas uh, just thrown together. And I don't know if that's that's how the books feel as well. Um, I'm actually quite curious about the books after, um, seeing this movie and dis- discussing it, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm curious where that author went with some of this stuff, but, um, yeah, it just seems like kind of, uh, all the elements that you would expect are there, you know, um, including these, these witch ladies. And yet we get, you know, some very, uh, for lack of a better term, modern moments, right? Uh, and I, 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 I don't know what to do with this moment, but I feel like we should say something about it. But I mean, uh, the "What does a girl know about swords?" moment, where you know Elianwi ends up having a, a greater wisdom about the taking and the using of magic swords than Terran ever does. They're they're moving toward the strong princess of the 1990s right which i i think people generally think of as an aerial property but this i'm never going to be able to pronounce her name or remember it this this princess has that four years before ariel which is kind of cool i guess she still feels underwritten to me but um if you compare her to aurora or snow white or even cinderella i mean she's much has much more agency than they do 
Yeah, that makes sense. And that makes it especially interesting that when, you know, Terran actually uses the magic sword and all of a sudden it makes him go mad in the way that the cauldron makes the Horn King go mad and he starts thinking he is Dirk the Daring from D- Dragon's Lair. Uh, you know, it is Elianwi who has to bring him back to reality. Yeah, and he really dislikes her for that. I don't remember, is that the, uh, that's the cause of their little falling out that lasts for like a, two minutes? <laughs> yeah, again, <laughs> pacing, pacing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually the one part of the movie that really bothered me, I guess, because I am such a modern viewer, is um, she's clearly right. And uh, their reconciliation moment, like she kind of takes the blame. Like I, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what she says, but um, you know, he come, he he does make the move of of coming back to to her to seek her out. But then she she makes the fir- the first and only move really as far as any voicing any sort of reconciliation. And and um, yeah, I was a little irritated on that part. <laughs> it well, felt that, like that, a little bit sort of cheap grace. I don't even know. Uh, uh, atonement of Terran after he's given up the sword, you know. I'll, you just need to believe in yourself, Terran. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, this is the Disney stereotype. I, right. <laughs> Wait, like, but it doesn't even apply. He doesn't need to believe no, in himself. No, he absolutely doesn't need to believe in himself. Huh. But again, that, that, that little cheap moment, I, you know, like I said, I mean, the... This movie has so many smart moments that, you know, it's frustrating to see that they can't come together into something sustained. There is a much better movie underneath this one. And I think maybe if it had been made by another studio, if it had been made by a studio without a history, it it could have been a much better movie. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. The animation, which we haven't really talked about, is really remarkable compared to everything we've seen for the last 10, 15 years from the studio. Some some of the animation is really staggering. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the scene where the dragons are chasing Henwin. Uh, that's, that's really gorgeously animated. And the stuff with the cauldron itself belching out the... Uh, belching out the army of the undead. That's really uh, that's really well done. I don't love the character design, but the the actual animation is is quite good. The best since Sleeping Beauty, I think, is probably a not an understatement. Yeah, and that was what I was kind of going to say when you said if it had been made by a different studio. I'm almost wondering, like, if this movie had been made by a like, if um, you know, if if if. If Disney's whole thing hadn't been kind of crushed uh, as a, you know, uh, whatever, uh, the fallout of World War II, you know, like they 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 go through all this package film era. And after they come out of that, like the movies are not ever really the same, you know, but like if this if this movie was made by the people who made uh, the original Snow White and Pinocchio and Fantasia like this, I, I feel like that th- that's studio could have made this movie and made it really good you know um but the intervening years have been too hard on the studio you know like they they just don't have the they don't have the gravitas of some of those early movies um to to pull this off i don't feel like well i just think 46 years of making movies 
for children. And, and I mean, we've talked about how in the early days they didn't see these movies as being primarily for children, but certainly by 1985, that was the reputation. If, if a, a studio that didn't have that kind of historical baggage could have come to this, I, I, I really think they could have made it something remarkable. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And even, even now, it's so much more ambitious than anything they've done since the 50s. Since Sleeping Beauty, again, it's it's it 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 has pretensions, it it has goals that I I just don't think we've seen in the '60s and '70s. Even in the movies we liked, they didn't have ambition. Um, so, I, in that sense, this is it, it almost belongs to the Disney Renaissance. I understand that the Disney Renaissance exists in part because this movie almost killed the studio, and so usually we we set it against. Uh, the Black Cauldron, but I, I really think this movie belongs much more to that period of Disney than to the 1970s, to the Xerox era, as we've been calling it. Yeah, and it is interesting because you kind of talk about the uh, the suits, you know, and um, obviously Kratzenberg is a huge part of the of the Renaissance, but um, also a lot of these same animators are are a huge part of the renaissance too you know or if not part of the renaissance then they go on to do other things like um again we've mentioned you know last month some of the some of the big names in animation that that are at the studio at this time coming out of that first sort of class of cal arts um i guess tim burton did a lot of work on this movie on the uh conceptual side of it but then he claims they he did but none of, none of his designs were yeah used. none of it was used which you know i again i don't know if that was a suits decision or you know it just you know he was he was not at a point um you know in his own craft that that i, I haven't actually seen any of his designs i don't i don't know how it would have held up but um yeah it just doesn't seem when like you think about if you think about somebody whose sensibility would be attuned to this movie tim burton is a pretty good choice i i think he's been a hack for many many years but if you if you think about the sorts of things he would do in the late 80s and early 90s it would fit this movie very well and it's a shame that he didn't have more input into what it looked like because i think probably his character designs would have been better i i i, I think these characters are fairly ugly and mostly because they have these giant eyes yeah um but you know um he he I, I haven't seen his designs either and nathan you have the dvd is that right no i actually got the uh digital download from amazon so i don't have any uh okay. special features yeah so i i would be interested in watching the special features for this movie and, and seeing if they have any um if they if they have any of burton's character designs because i i would be interested in seeing them I would be amazed if there are special features. <laughs> Maybe there are, but like, like you said, like it just seems like this movie was buried for so long that I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, the VHS doesn't have any. Uh, but then again, I mean, VHS tapes, generally speaking, don't have special features. I would encourage you both and all of our listeners too to Google Tim Burton Black Cauldron because those um, character designs are online and absolutely. The movie would have been better if they'd used them. I'm looking at them now. They're they are they are much more interesting character designs. Okay, okay. Well, I, I want to ask you guys again because you're my you're my Disney gurus uh, about a couple moments that you know I, I noticed, but I don't know how to place them or what to do with them. And one of them is the fact that you know uh, in the middle of this very Ghostbusters, very Masters of the Universe score, 
uh, when Gurgi first appears, all of a sudden we're in Aaron Copeland land, and we never go back. Uh, is that you know just the is that just a throwaway or was there something to it? Hmm. I I haven't really thought much about the score, but to some extent, and I know that Gurgi is in the original books and i know that some of the more cutesy dialogue that he does the munchings and crunchings that stuff actually comes from the book okay but so much of gurgi feels like an attempt to shoehorn lightness into what would otherwise be a very dark movie that it makes sense that the music would follow him i it that that again seems like that the kind of tension between what the movie the dark movie this wants to be and the children's movie that the studio made it. But I, I don't have thoughts beyond that. I'm sorry. Okay. Josh, anything? Uh, my only thoughts on that are that you're, you're right and pointed it out. And that the, the Ghostbusters stuff is much more interesting. Like I've, I feel like the, the movie feels much. Um, I, I don't know. I, when, when it's, even though the whole time in my head I'm thinking, wow, this this sounds exactly like Ghostbusters. Um, uh, the, it's it's still those those moments and those scenes. Um, you know, maybe it's just my my uh, positive feelings towards Ghostbusters, but I I just feel like they were much much better moments in the movie. Um, so the soundtrack does make a big difference, and I think the how the movie feels. Fair enough. And then the other one, uh, and this might be something where. This is just the, the a function of the fact that I haven't read the novels or visited the source material. But at the very, very end of the film, uh, you get Taryn and Gurgi striking a, a very noticeable Pieta pose. Uh, and then it cuts away from them, maybe to Elianwi, I can't even remember. But then you cut back and you're no longer in the witch's wasteland, but you're in this green forest again, and they all walk off into the closing credits. Uh, I mean, am I... Am I supposed to take that as an, you know, something analogous to the end of the Lion King, where you know now that the disruptive force has been dispelled, life can return, or was that just another bit of lazy animation? Do you think? Huh. I think it was probably just visual shorthand. So lazy animation, I guess you would call it. Uh, the the pathetic fallacy. Okay, all right. <laughs> I don't know. You, you may have something there, though. Uh, I you watched this much clo- closer than I did. Um, I, I don't well, recall. Because, uh, well, he's also seen it ten. That, times that's because much. you guys are are intimidating, man. I knew I had to do my prep to come on this show. <laughs> yeah, the fact that I'm intimidating Nathan Gilmore does not ring true in any universe. I don't think, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah. It's funny to think of this show as being the intimidating one to come on. <laughs> oh, now, come on. I mean, you you guys are are, are really working history historians of the Disney films. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm some guy who watched this movie so I could come on a, on a podcast. <laughs> so you're you're suggesting maybe that there's a kind of Fisher King uh trope going on here that yeah that's what i'm asking because i mean for the you know probably you know 20 maybe even 25 minutes before the closing credits roll you are in this landscape that is all browns and reds and you know grays and then you know you have Terran holding you know the slain gurgi and then he returns from the dead and then 
everything around them returns from the dead as well. So, I just did some quick Googling and found out that the Fisher King comes from Welsh folklore. Ah, okay. So, if nothing else, I think the Welshness of this movie, and the, the author of the books is named Lloyd Alexander, which is a pretty Welsh name. Yeah. Um, so, I, I think it's pretty clearly drawing on that Welsh mythology. So, maybe, I mean, maybe it's not lazy. Maybe it is in the DNA of the story to have the kind of Fisher King world returns to... Um, to greenness after the evil is defeated. Mm-hmm. I really like this idea. I will point out, though, that I think at the beginning of the movie, we get a similar sort of um, landscape cut jump where you have the opening um, uh, whatever voiceover narration kind of setting the scene, and then we go to this kind of idyllic green pasture um I think, right? With the, oh, yeah, true enough, true the, enough. With the squirrel yeah. and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it does bookend the movie nicely that way. So I'm not saying that both can't be true, but there there is an, at least another precedent within the movie itself of kind of the, um, you know, I guess he's ending up back. In many ways, he's ending up back where he belongs. So only now that he, the, the big change in uh, Taryn, at least, is that he now has friends and he realizes that, that his dreams were short-sighted and foolish and he's ready to, I guess, go on the, the actual journey of growing up properly. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, um, so he does, there's that hero's arc of, of returning to where, to where you're from. Um, but, but returning changed. Um, but I, I really like your other reading. I think, I think there may be something there. It's always nice when our guest comes up with the, uh, Overly analytical, stretching reading. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I was I was wondering what else you have for us, Nathan, because uh, this, this is oh, really just, good stuff. I just just one more little <laughs> throwaway marginal note that I made that uh, when uh, Elianwi and Taryn are reconciled, uh, Gurgi returns and uh, Fluter refers to him as as his pungent little friend. And I'm thinking, okay, someone in Aladdin's writing room was a secret uh, Black Cauldron fan. Wait, why is that? I, I haven't seen oh, because Aladdin that, for a long time. Oh, because that is what uh, Jafar calls the thief in the opening sequence at the Cave of Wonders. Ah. Yeah, I bet, I bet it was. Because, I mean, pungent, that's not an adjective that uh, ever resurfaces in Aladdin. That's a great catch, Nathan. Well, Well done. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Although I think that is that is a nice tie-in, as, as like as Michael said earlier, like this is the, um, uh, you know, this is the the first the first tottering steps towards the Renaissance, you know. So it would make sense that once they do hit the Renaissance, those some of those same people who are around would would uh, you know throw throw the baby picture, so to speak, you know, back up on the screen and say like, hey, remember like remember that movie we made? <laughs> nice. I like that. I like that. Well, and it, it helps that those would have been the only people in 1991 who could have seen the Black Cauldron. You know what I mean? Oh, that's yeah, that's true too. There was a, a rumor I read about in 1990 that they were about to release the Black Cauldron on VHS, and um, the Little Mermaid did so well in theaters that they 
bumped the Black Cauldron to release the Little Mermaid VHS instead. But what I read is there's no actual evidence behind that claim. It's just something that Black Cauldron fans tell themselves to make themselves feel better. And that's enough for me. It really is. I really feel for the Black Cauldron fan. I mean, the people who I feel like if if you were exactly the right age in 1985, um, this movie w- must have hit for certain people. And then uh, for it to just disappear and the company to go a completely different direction must have been so disheartening for them, you know? Like, oh, yeah. You're and, like, and- wow, this is this is it. You know, Disney is making movies for me now. And then it just, you know, is a total shift away. And it's the they, they go, you know, in, in a few years, we're going to we're going to go full on musical Disney, you know, um, which or even I mean, the next the next film is The Great Mouse Detective, which uh, skews a little younger. Than, uh, than Black Cauldron. Right, and and see, I I didn't I I did I don't even remember seeing Great Mouse Detective in theaters. The shift that I remember is from Black Cauldron to Oliver and Company. The first movie I ever saw in a movie theater, which is just worlds different. And yeah. so yeah, I mean you know what Josh just narrated is my experience with this film. I mean it it's you know the uh, the suits have locked it away, but now it emerges into the light again. It's an underground Disney movie. It's the closest thing they have to an underground feature. It is, it is. So how how fitting that it would be the one that I come on to talk about. <laughs> and actually, well, I, I, I probably liked this three times as much as I expected to. I, I really went in expecting to hate this movie. And I, I don't know that it's earned its reputation. As I said, it's better than... It is certainly not the worst Disney feature we've watched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really um, I found a lot to enjoy in it, and uh, like I said at the, at the top, I'm I'm ready to love this movie. Um, I I feel like there's there's maybe an alternate universe version of myself, you know, that that saw this at the right time and 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 is that same kid that you you know like you were Nathan that that thought yeah wow the, this is it you know like it's um, yeah the, it definitely it ticks a lot of the right boxes for me. <laughs> well, and I mean, there's things that when you revisit it. You know, as an adult, uh, it, it's definitely got. Like I said, I the, the great disappointment is that it has these just phenomenally smart moments. The Narcissus pool, Gergi's last line before he goes into the cauldron, uh, the Pieta scene at the end, that are just so smart. But then it's interspersed with you know uh, just clankers. Uh, clankers is all I can call them. <laughs> Yeah, it it really is two movies struggling against each other. Uh-huh. I read that Lloyd Alexander liked the movie, but that he felt that he was only able to like it because it wasn't meaningfully an adaptation of the books. Like that's that's how far afield it goes. Nice. Which in some ways is the best way to adapt a book, you know? Like it is such a different medium. You almost have to like uh, just grab the heart of it and and then rebuild from there, you know. And then the then, Stanley Kubrick approach. Yeah, um, yeah. Don't argue with Stanley Kubrick, I guess. Can you imagine if Stanley Kubrick had directed the Black Cauldron? That is the movie <laughs> that I think we need to see. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's first animated feature, coming right between The Shining and Full Metal Jacket. Nice. Oh man. Well, Michael, I know you've got to go in a few minutes. Is there anything uh, you guys wanted to 
any 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 last things on you know we we haven't really touched on i guess um our our kind of thread theme of of how these things uh shape our imaginations um or maybe we've touched on it a little bit but no uh, michael won't, won't you take a swing at that and then we'll i think that'd be a good place to end well, I think the the fact that the story it tells is not the story of somebody becoming a hero, but rather somebody becoming comfortable with being ordinary is different and interesting and probably good for us because the truth is most of us are not going to be heroes, right? We talked in The Rescuers about the kind of tiny acts of heroism that Bernard performs. Taryn doesn't even really perform tiny acts of heroism. He's not really a hero. He's just there and he has a good heart and he he is willing to support the people who are the heroes. And that, as I said earlier, that is not a story that gets told very often. And especially not a story that really ever gets told in children's movies anymore, where the whole point is that uh, this person who looks normal is actually uh, heroic. So I, I really appreciated that and wish the movie around it would have been a little better so that that was a lesson we all could have learned as children. Well, I did learn that lesson, Michael. I... <laughs> Maybe that's why you're a better person than me, Nathan. <laughs> no, I think it's just why I was fascinated with it when it finally hit VHS. But, you know, I, I think, you know, as far as the imagination that this shapes, I mean, it's definitely taking place in a world whose cosmology, uh, like I said at the outset of the episode, is a, a pagan one. These are evil forces that have been hidden underground for tens of thousands of years uh, that, you know, can only be defeated by, you know, self-sacrifice and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a Christianized, you know, pagan tale, I think. Uh, and I think for that reason, uh, you know, it raises a lot of the questions that we have been digging into here. Uh, but again, because it can't sustain it, uh, like Michael said, I, I think that um, it's it's a movie that you have to imagine what it could have been, uh, even as you appreciate the moments when it realizes that. Yeah, if our listeners haven't seen it, they really should. It's it's not a great movie. It's not top ten Disney, but it's much better than um, than I think anybody thinks it is. Right. I will agree with that. Yeah. Well, Nathan, I'm so glad that you came on. I really appreciate your your insights that you brought, and uh, it was it was fun for me as a longtime listener of uh, Christian Humanist podcast uh, to, to kind of feel like I was <laughs> eavesdropping on one of those conversations in a way, um, having both you and Michael on here. So, um, and we look forward to um, next month. Uh, I think we're going to get the third member. Is that right, Michael? Is that next month already? Yep. David Grubbs is coming on to talk about the Great Mouse Detective. Yeah. So. That'll be great. Not not the one um, I would have expected him to do, but hey. But we are excited to to uh, yeah finish that, um, the Trinity, I guess. <laughs> That's not radical to say. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if you enjoyed what you heard today, and you're not listening over to the Christian Humanist, um, you ought to be. Um, so I encourage you to to go over there, and then um, yeah, as uh, listening to Nathan today, you know. Uh, why he is a very frequent guest on all these other sh- other shows because uh, he does a great job. So thanks thanks again, Nathan. Um, our press liaison uh, is Kristen Philippic. We are on uh, the interwebs, sort of, um, at before they were dot live or um, 
actually, you're probably better off going to christianhumanist.org. Is that right? Is that the right address, guys? It is. Yes, it is. All right. And uh, you can continue this conversation by finding us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt. Michael, I don't know how to pronounce your name anymore. Um, you changed it. Hell bummer. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Nathan? If you, ser- if you search for my name, I'm sure you'll find it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and mine's just N, N, N Gilmore. It's very simple. All right. So for Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, I'm Josh Altman Uh Just want to gratefully say that we know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. Uh, we want to encourage you to send your podcast players' dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. This movie has zero quotable lines that uh, I felt like were appropriate for ending the show. Um, so... I got nothing for you guys. Sorry. (laughs) Thanks for listening.